0: To Way of the Blade, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Schneider, author of Way of the Blade 100 of the Greatest Bloody Matches in Professional Wrestling History, and writer on Saguna Kaeda blog. I am uh, pleased to be joined by uh, author and book publisher uh, Jonathan Snowden, writer of uh, Shooters, Total MMA, The MMA Encyclopedia, and Shamrock, uh, the Ken Shamrock biography and uh, major domo of Hybrid Shoot Publishing, which is the publisher of Way of the Blade, the book, which everyone, if they are listening to this and have not bought, should go on Amazon right now and buy. Uh, John, good to talk to you, my friend. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Really excited about um, Way of the Blade. I'm not sure how much we've talked about it. Like, I I know we talked about it a lot before the book came out, but, like, just... uh, If I haven't told you, like, just how impressed I am by this book, uh, how great I found it, how much fun I had reading it, like, it's just phenomenal. Like, I I couldn't put it over enough.
0: Yeah, and I'm really happy with the response that I've gotten about the book. You know, one of the things, and you know this as well as anybody having done, you know, four books yourself, when you're writing something like this, you don't know what the response is going to be. You don't know if anybody's going to buy it or anybody's going to read it or anybody's going to give a shit about it. And it's nice that, like, almost to the T all the feedback that I've gotten from this has been really positive. And I've gotten some people who have said some really uh, incredibly flattering things about the book where it's like, I can't even believe that somebody's saying how saying uh, things as nice as some of the things I've heard. I think we got one, one star review. Maybe somebody I banned from DVD VR back when I moderated the board. I don't know. I've got some old enemies.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you say that because there's zero doubt in my mind that uh, some of you know, most of the response I've gotten has been hugely positive, which is which is great, which is kind of like the, the opposite of my, the rest of my internet existence. <laughs> <laughs> Clouded in negativity sometimes. But like these, the books have always gotten great responses. But then the few times they haven't, like I'm very suspicious that it really is like – uh, related to like message board beef from like 1997
0: or something, <laughs> <laughs> right, Some guy said some shit it's maybe it's Rob Feinstein. We had to buy ban him from the DVD VR board over and over again. Uh, uh he's th- responsible for every negative review, <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's just fights it's Feinstein doing it. I remember at one point he uh he logged on at like three in the morning on the DVDVR and just posted like fuck you like a thousand times so when we woke up we just had to delete all of that uh i'm not even sure what what uh what was the impetus for that <laughs> it's like, it's like,
1: like if all the shenanigans i've gotten into in my uh, life is like an internet um person like troll I, troll? <laughs> troll. Uh, I think the, the number one like kind of like longest lasting thing has been uh, being the moderator, I used to write for a, an MMA website called Bloody Elbow, and I was a very, as you might imagine, somewhat aggressive uh, moderator of their comment section. And, and I would say, like, this is all like a decade plus in the past, and like, there's not like a month goes by that like it doesn't crop up into my life in some form, like someone uh, holding grudges from from you know the year 2011 about <laughs> how I like. I blocked, the, blocked them for a GSP post I didn't like.
0: <laughs> said some shit about BJ Penn that you weren't a fan of, and you banned him for 2000. Crazy Horse Bennett, would that have been a, or was Crazy Horse Bennett, did he predate that? Would that have been the uh, – Yeah, uh, it's,
1: it's wild, the things that people hold on to. Um, so – but some relationships you hold on to in a good way. Like, you know, I had um, – all these positive memories of uh, the death Valley driver uh, video review and the message board. And, um, and so like to have the opportunity to be like, uh, bring uh, Phil Schneider the, to the forefront in some small way, like uh, it's just such a thrill for me. Cause you know, those are also memories I have of the internet, like all the the people that impacted me in, in a positive way. Um, and, and you guys were really that like, kind of like the first people I ever saw that were like or I realized like hey you can like write something about wrestling and like you know it can be serious but not serious at the same time I don't know they just uh, it kind of opened my eyes to the, this possibility and um, that it's really been a big thing in my life so it's uh, I don't know it's just it's really cool to to be a part of this book with you
0: oh, I really appreciate it and we've got other things in the hopper and you know this is going to be a you know, I think this this what what one thing I'm happy about is my kind of main, almost my primary goal in the book was I don't want to lose John money. I don't want to like take money out of his kids, you know, like college funds and his like his you know his his wife's uh, you know like pocket for uh, for this. And we and so we have we we've achieved that, right? We didn't we we're at the point where we're all in the black in this. So we're gonna yep. do some more stuff. So which I'm happy about.
1: When it started, though, like that wasn't even like I was making decisions cavalierly, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) I, you know, I I had a contract to to write several more books for a a publisher, uh, ECW Press. And I was just like, you know what? I don't want to do that. I can do it myself. I'll ask out of it. And like all that was great when I was had a second job with Bleacher Report. (laughs) And, you know, like I had a lot of extraneous income and then all of a sudden, like, uh covid hits and they lay off most of their staff and all of a sudden i'm like wait a second i've done a bunch of people money to write esoteric wrestling books <laughs> that we don't know if anyone's gonna ever purchase or read like all of a sudden like what seemed like not a big deal i was like Oh, maybe this is a big deal. Yeah,
0: right. I set a bunch of money on fire hoping I would be uh, nourished by the ashes, and we yeah. will say. Well, I mean so I think the, at least in my case, we you know, with the it paid off in a small amount. You didn't it didn't get all burned on fire. So we're gonna do another book and, and who I, knows I, how I, many.
1: I immediately sent it all back to you in the for the next book. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, that's all right. That'll work. <laughs> I,
1: I, I've I've learned no lessons, but that. You know, that's all right. I have faith. Like when I saw the product for this one, like, I don't know. I was just buoyed by it. I was just like, there's no way that Phil can fail. He's going to, this is going to be great. And, um, and it has been like, you know, all things considered, I, uh, I feel tremendous about it. You know, it's (laughs) it's a great success. Um, and, um, I don't know. I, I just think like as a piece of art, um, I'm sure there've been lots of wrestling books that have sold more copies than we have. But as far as like, The artistry of this and and um also chris bryan of course the artist i I never you know feel like sometimes he doesn't get mentioned enough when i talk about it because the work that he did uh so perfectly matched your your written descriptions like i don't know you just i
0: I talk uh, up chris constantly whenever i talk about the book because i i you know I, i i i'm I made some jokes. I wrote about some, found some old matches people hadn't seen. I drifted and riffed, drift. but I mean, his art is, I think, what makes that book it is so good, and it like fits what I did so well, and in what I had it. It wasn't what I had in mind when I was thinking about it initially, but in it's perfect, and I love it, and it's so good. And if people haven't, you know, checked out the book and see, it's worth getting just for his art. It's an art worth getting as an art book, even if there weren't any, wasn't any writing at all. I mean, I, I mean, think
1: it, it gives it such an underground feel. And like, uh, you know, to me, you, you guys were always the, the wrestling underground, uh, anyway, you know, the message board guys, the, the road trip guys, the, the, you know, and, and so, uh, to have him do this like our crumb style, kind of, uh, very like 1970s zine style art. Like, uh, I it just felt to me like it was going to fit perfectly. And then, uh, his obvious passion for it too, like really shines through with that, some of the artwork and some of the more grisly ones, where, uh, you know, like there's a guy with a hammer standing over one of the <laughs> doors and stuff. Like it was just, uh, I don't know, blown away. I was blown away every time he would send me a new piece of art.
0: Yeah, I did. A, I did a pod with Chris, and it's like when you talk to him. And you get okay. I get why he fits with this. He's a guy who like was like an Australian indie wrestler. I mean, like a dude who kind of is in this world for sure. Besides being a super talented artist, and he, you know, it was like once I, anyway, I had that conversation, like yeah, of course he'd be perfect for this. Uh, that makes that makes a hundred percent of the sense once you talk to him. Um, well, we're here for a reason outside of just talking about how great. The book is, but that's part of it too. Uh, We're here to talk about, as I do on this podcast every week, one of the 100 matches from the Way of the Blade book. Uh, And it's one that you, as a longtime uh, historian of mixed martial arts, uh, I think is perfect to talk about. And that's uh, Tetsuo Nakano versus Masakatsu Funaki from UWF Reborn, uh, July 24th, 1989.
1: I, I really love this match. Um, I love that it's a match that's sub 10 minutes. Like, I, I think uh, more wrestling matches should be shorter than they are, particularly in today's era, where uh, it seems like every match is 30 minutes is a minimum.
0: Oh, my uh, God. I saw this. Uh, this is going to come out a little after we were recording it. But I saw that like the New Japan show that was, I guess, last night or the night before, the average time of the six matches was 28 minutes it's like just shoot me in the head what are you kidding me an average of 28 minutes per match my god
1: <laughs> like as a long as a long time fan that definitely uh, makes me want to die <laughs> Yeah
0: just totally like oh my god Was it all of them 33 minutes You can't yes and this one's like Under 10 and it did, you didn't Watch this thinking they needed another Five right like it felt like a You know this was as long as this should Have been certainly and it fit perfectly <laughs> Yes I completely agree with you I, Especially as I get older and you get You know we both have kids and we got other Projects to work on I just the, um, I don't have the, the bandwidth for for thirty plus minute wrestling matches anymore hardly ever I mean they've got to really be outstanding for me to be I, able to 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 do that I mean you know I'm I'm, I'm I have a a a four year old I'm just I'm watching I'm watching uh you know Bluey those are like six minutes eight minutes long that's like my time th- my my uh my uh attention span these days
1: right yeah totally and uh, I I just like want to tell some of the the the, the wrestlers like. You know, like when Ric Flair is talking about going Broadway with everybody all the time, 70 minutes all around, like he's lying. They work 20 minutes. Like even the 30 minute match wasn't 30 minutes. Like no, Ric Flair doesn't have the material to work 60 minutes or 38 minutes or whatever. Like you certainly don't need to do it every time you get in the ring. Like I promise you. Like
0: yeah. it's okay. And UWF Reborn was a promotion that would have some long ass matches. I mean it's funny. I mean I was actually got into like a discussion on Twitter today about this very issue and this very promotion because we were talked about I saw the new Japan thing and I uh there was a UWF Reborn show um that was actually before a little before this show um or actually a little after it was um the October 25th 1989 show opened with two 30 minute time limit draws one after another.
1: And that's the thing about Funaki in particular. Like we're taught, we're like praising this nine minute match, but like Funaki was like a guy that would go long all the time. Um, and, and he didn't really necessarily have the material for it. Like, you know, he's doing 30 minutes with the green Ken Shamrock and, you know, with with Suzuki. And he's got these long matches with Yoji Anjo. And like some of them are just like you just want him to get on with. They're rough. Then.
0: I mean, we watched when we prepared the Death Valley Driver other 80s. This had to be gone. I don't know. Twelve, 13 years ago. Uh uh, where we put together like a DVD set of all the matches from sort of the miscellaneous promotions in Japan in the 1980s, and when I prepared them, I watched all of the footage that was available for both UWFs. So I watched this show, uh, not knowing uh, the t- match lengths of these matches, and I the first time would draw 30 minutes Shiego Miado versus Mark Rush, 30 minute draw. <laughs> And then followed up by Minoru Suzuki, Yogi Anjo, 30-minute draw. I'm like, my God, what is going on? So if you can imagine just coming in blind, throwing in a UWF Reborn DVD, and they knock you out 60 minutes straight of uh, undercard guys working a draw, right? Like, Miata was the lowest-rate guy in the whole promotion, probably.
1: So I, I had kind of been spoiled, I think, because I, I had watched a lot of the, the UWF stuff uh, year, years ago, back in the days when we had the VHS tapes and stuff. And the, the main source for them came from Jeff Lynch, a guy who had everything from Japan. But what, what he had was like a laser disc collection of, of UWF. And what I realize now is that some of those matches were heavily, heavily, heavily edited. <laughs> and <laughs> To their benefit, you know, I didn't. I didn't get the the thirty minutes of Mark Rush or like Mark Fleming trying to work a super long match and stuff like that. Like that, that stuff didn't make the cut. So, um,
0: yeah, that's sometimes, uh, that's
1: sometimes the greatest hits version is maybe enough.
0: <laughs> you, know? I, you know, I know that when I was watching, um, when I would get Japanese video store tapes, uh, you know, almost always like especially in the New Japan, all of the Liger and Otani. Uh, and guys, matches would all be cut to the last eight minutes or so.
1: They they do the one opening grappling sequence, then cut to high spots. Like yeah, that was the-
0: and, and, and then you'd be always like, man, you know, I'm like a kind of uh, I have like a mild OCD about this stuff, and I always cuts and clips and that kind of stuff always drive me crazy. And I remember always thinking, man, I wish I really had this whole match. And then when you got these New Japan classes that got the whole match, it's just like they're kind of just sitting in knee bars for four minutes. You're Like, okay, I get why you just. Cut this out of there and went right to the right. Went to the sizzle. The uh, you know, like a, the, the the mat work of Liger and Otani matches aren't great. They're not great. They don't do a lot. These guys sit around and chill. And it's like you watch those. And go, yeah, this was improved. when I only watched the last eight minutes of this. So,
1: so this match though uh, has basically it has a little bit of it, but almost none. Like it starts from the very beginning, just on fire. Like the crowd here is i don't know if it's just mic super well but it's very loud um early on it's very pro nakano and and he starts the match like in in a way that just really sets the tone because funaki tries to do the ring of honor style handshake and and he kicks him in the hand and um it is on from that moment until i mean this is like if if you're like a person that watches like contemporary wrestling and is like oh ishii goes really hard or suzuki goes really hard like no, these, no,
0: not these, this is hard.
1: <laughs> these guys go so hard. Like I've seen a lot of fights, a lot of shoot fights, a lot of pretend shoot fights. Like these guys are kicking the shit out of each other.
0: Yeah, I they're mean, killing. They're killing each other.
1: This is, this is worse than real because they're not trying to defend themselves.
0: Yes, and uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, sort of when I wrote about this match in the book, I kind of described this as almost like a classic, uh, like storytelling archetype. As, like, Funaki is absolutely the golden boy of this promotion, right? He is the five-scar recruit, the captain of the football team, right? Pretty, long hair, like, you know, just, you know, cut up body, you know, like, uh, absolutely as the definition of an overdog. And Nakano is kind of tubby, and he's kind of got, like a kind of Elvis hair, and bad skin and he's like you know he's this is like a fist fight between the you know like the, the captain of the football team and the stoner who hangs up behind the uh bleachers right and you know funaki uh, he can offer his hand because what he doesn't hurt him to be gracious right you know of course you're gonna be gracious you're the you're the golden boy right i'm gonna shake hands and with know this know guy and being,
1: is be uh, is the uh he immediately makes Nakano even uglier.
0: <laughs> oh my God, he just mauls him. But like part of that Nakano's response is just don't fucking put your hand out and shake my hand. You know what I mean? Don't condescend me, motherfucker. We're going to fight, right? Like I'm not going to shake your hand like we're buddies. You don't, haven't said three words to me since we were in English class together freshman year, right? You look at me like I'm a piece of shit. So we're going to fight. And then, you know, Funaki, when he gets his handshake uh, rejected, then immediately starts, I mean, just absolutely obliterates Nikano's face in this fight. I mean, he is just, this is as bad a broken nose as I think I've ever seen in a pro wrestling match.
1: And then, as you point out, uh, the doctor comes in to to take a look at it, right, Um, wearing... Uh, a very late 80s, early 90s kind of outfit with, like, this colorful sweater and his, like, baggy... Uh, a Cosby jeans.
0: sweater on.
1: <laughs> he's got the Cosby sweater, the Japanese version of the Cosby sweater, and he's just like, oh, I, have, I mean, I don't see a problem. <laughs> like, really? The <laughs> like, guy's nose is shattered. And then uh, Nakano immediately uh, uh, put this uh, finger over one of his nostrils, like, Chris Benoit style, and blows out this, like, Giant, you can see it on the camera. Like these, this terrible 1980s VHS-style recording, you can still see the mist oh, yeah. just out
0: of his nose, and which does it on the other side. Which is a wide. terrible idea if your nose is broken. Do not blow your nose if your nose is broken. If you blow your nose, this is somebody I used to box, so I know this firsthand. If you blow blood out of a broken nose, your eyes will fall shot. So I'm surprised by this end of the end of this fight. Nakano could have, could see anything, right? Uh,
1: so I, I mean, I, I don't really, I don't know enough to know exactly what was going on here, right? Because um, there there is like a history with these guys. They um, Nakano had started in the the original UWF, and then when, when everybody went back to New Japan, he was there as like a, a quasi young boy in the, in the mid eighties at uh, the same time that Funaki was kind of the, once again, the golden boy of the new Japan system. Like he, Funaki is coming up in a class with like Jushin Liger and, and Chris Benoit and like Hashimoto is a young guy. And yet Funaki is the one that everyone points to and says like, this is the guy, this is the next Inoki. This guy's going to be a big star. So, um, some of this may have been brewing for a long time. Where like Nakano's a little bit older, he's been around uh, a little bit longer, but like most of his professional career has been watching this guy kind of sail right past him. And uh, I would imagine there's a level of frustration with that, like as a shoot, you know, like uh, that can't feel great.
0: Yeah, and Nakano is a guy who, uh, you know, had had a cool career. But not a great career, right? I mean, I think this is the highlight of his career as in the ring, I think. And was a guy who was always around. And I'm never not excited to watch a Nakano match. But he certainly never reached the heights that Funaki did. And I think he probably knew he wasn't going to, right? And I think that, yeah, it's got to be incredibly frustrating. And much like sort of life, right? Even though uh, Nakano throws everything that he can at Funaki, he goes down at the end. You know what I mean? There is no heroic redemption arc for Nakato in this match. He gets his nose broken and he loses. And it's kind of like <laughs> a little bit like, you know, man, this isn't the way this would end in the movies, right? We don't, I, I think he doesn't I, get a storybook ending, right? He gets mashed just like, you know, the equivalent guy ends up working at an auto parts shop while the Funakis in the world end up, you know, on Wall Street.
1: I think it's a uh, it's unfortunate for him that probably like the two most famous matches of Nakano's career are both kind of although this wasn't entirely one sided. It was definitely a beating. And then the other match I think people associate with him is the the first I think it was the first uh, Super Vader match when when Vader went to UWFI. And 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 that was another like just severe ass kicking like that's like a under four minute match like we're. Yeah. You know, he just takes a horrific beating. Where you know, you know how Vader works a WCW match. Like, and you tell him, like, you can do anything you want to to this little guy, and and he does.
0: Yeah, and, um, yeah. Vader was, Vader was, Vader was never a uh, wasn't a safe worker under any circumstances. And certainly when you let him loose in a promotion where you don't pull anything, uh, or you try not to pull anything, he didn't pull anything in any of those fights for sure. Um, and yeah, Nakano. I remember that match. Nakano does get absolutely obliterated. He's great. It. He's he's a great pace pushing guy. So he's always like he's never he, he, you know there are some lion holds dudes in these in the UWF system matches, and Nakano's not really a lion holds guy. He's a guy who's gonna get up and fight and move forward and and be aggressive and. Pace push, which always makes what is something that makes his fights and matches so entertaining, right? Even if he pace pushes his way into an ass whooping.
1: Yeah, I mean you're absolutely right that there's a lot of hold sitting in this and um,
0: in this promotion, <laughs> not in this match, really. I mean, I, I hardly it, but
1: a little in this match, which is like Finaki doing his thing where he grabs a leg lock, and it's like uh, knowing now, like knowing I don't know what people thought in 1989, right? But like. Now we know that he's not doing anything, right? Right. <laughs> they're, just, they're just sitting there. There's no hold being applied. But um, they would sometimes do this for minutes at a time.
0: Oh, my gosh. Some of those – I know people are a lot fonder of the Takata uh, stuff than I am. And part of the reason was so many of those Takata matches are just like loosely applied knee bar. Catch your <laughs> breath. And you're like, come on, man. Get, put some work into here, right? Whereas you know, my, my favorite all-time – uh, UWF-style uh, workers, Yoshiaki Fujiwara, and he's a guy who would always engender to do interesting things during the parts of the fights that were them sitting in knee bars. Like, he's a guy who's always going to look to adjust and counter and never just sit in um, the way that some of these other guys would.
1: Yeah, the guys that I like were similar. Like, Fujiwara was... um uh, it took me a while to uh, acquire that that taste. Like, it was hard for me not, to, as a younger person, not to just look at him as, like, what's that old guy doing out there, <laughs> you know? Um, right, because he looked, he looked
0: 50 when he was 31, Fujiwara. Yeah,
1: he's, uh, he's probably younger than I am, like, <laughs> now, in some of these matches, but he still looks like he's 75. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know if he was just, he was uh, cursed with that. The, I mean, the, it's,
0: it's a weird thing. He was He was... He, he looked 60 when he was 30, and he looks 60 when he's... I mean, he never doesn't look like... He, he's a weird guy who never aged because he got old so young. He basically looks the same now. He doesn't look completely different now than he looked in, like, 1993. You know?
1: The guys who are similar, I think, but uh, the, who I enjoyed were, like, Volkan and, and Kiyoshi Tamura, who... Uh, who were also constantly doing stuff in the, during the times when other people were mostly just laying there. Uh, kind of in a different way than Fujiwara, I think. Uh, maybe more showy and more active, as opposed to, to subtle and, and interesting. Yeah. But uh, definitely active. Like There's a lot of activity with some of these guys. And uh, Nakano, in his own way, was definitely one of them. Not, not so much on the ground, but like uh, if he was in the match, there was going to be some, some fisticuffs, some sluggery, yeah. some... Uh, and if he was
0: in a hole, he's like fighting, fighting not in a technical way to get out of it, but in like a squirmy way. Like I'm gonna squirm my way to get back on my feet. Looks like you'd see in MMA, right? He's a guy who wants to get it back on his feet, and he doesn't want to be on the ground and wants to be throwing hands and kicks and suplexes. But he knows if he's on the mat too long, it's it's bad news. Uh, so he's he's a, and you know he puts a he lays in a an appropriate level. Uh, ass kicking on Funaki in this fight uh, for a guy, you know, he's he understands what happened to his nose, and he wasn't going to go, you know, he wasn't going to go lightly either. Um, and certainly doesn't. He throws some kicks right to his head in this thing; they're pretty great. Yeah, there,
1: there's one, there's one where like Funaki's had him on the ground, and they're kind of scrambling to get up, and, and Nakano is up first, and uh, uh, Funaki's kind of like on his hands and knees, and he just eats a kick right to the head, yeah. like just. A straight up shoot kick yes the, the parlance of the time and and he's like f- kind of flopping around the ring like a fish and it's like it, in a way that like if it was in the hands of a, a different wrestler it would be comical but somehow wasn't you know like we're, you almost believed and maybe he was uh kind of knock silly so there was a i mean both what guys were given and taken here
0: yeah i don't think there was a ton of i don't think there was a ton of uh Artifice to add to this to this match, right? I don't think there was a ton of close magic. I think that stuff was just thrown, and I think it probably there were tempers flared. I mean, I cannot imagine that Nakano was happy about his state in life or the fact that he is probably going to need a sleep apnea machine for the rest of his life after that. I mean, that that was the kind of nose break that you never breathe right again, right? Like you're just always gonna wheeze from till you die. Right, like, I got my, uh, I got my, I didn't uh, was sparring against a secret service agent. Guy had to be like six three or six four uh, back during my boxing days, but wasn't as, I mean, again, maybe that's wrong, but I wasn't as experienced in me. I had a little more craft than he had, and I was in sparring in the ring, and I was like, you know, moving in and out and throwing punches, and I threw like a feint. Which was so stupid, because I'm not a faint... I was never a faint fighter. I mean, I was a will move forward and take punches and throw, but I was feeling myself. I threw a faint, and he threw a straight right hand, and mashed my nose into a million pieces. And, you know, like, I just, you know, I needed to have surgery years later, and it was just the kind of thing that was just like, my life had changed from that point on as far as my functionality and health, and you got a sense that that happened to Nakano in this, right? Like, he's just... He's never going to breathe easy through that nose again. And he was throwing kicks and punches like somebody who realized that was true.
1: So the the thing about this is like, I, I wonder like having talked a little bit to Funaki as well as you can, like he speaks some English and he, and he writes English pretty clearly. And but and we did talk some through a translator, but like I, I wonder like what he would make of himself, you know, if he went back and watched this because, you know, he's, He's 20 or 21 years old at this point, right? And so there's – he he's got a lot to prove. And, like, you know, he's been kind of annoyed, it, but you still have to go out and do it. And, you know, this was a top-heavy promotion. It's got Takata and Maeda at the top and Fujiwara is there. And it's like it, it's not going to be super easy to, to break the, into the next level. And and so I, I it's, it seems to me like he kind of felt that pressure. And so maybe he's going harder. Certainly than he would today. Like there's a match just a couple of months before this one where he's in a, a, a against Bob Backlund. And, and he just he goes hard at Backlund in a way that like you would not normally see a young Japanese talent go against an established American star. Like um, he's on the mat with Backlund and he's just kicking the shit out of him. Like, you know, to break a hold, he is kicking him full force in the back or in the face. Right. And, and Backlund is just kind of looking at him like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> like, uh, he's giving him these, like, what we would know now are like these kind of like uh, oblique kicks that like John Jones, the MMA fighter, will throw at someone's knee to try to uh, hyperextend it and stuff. Like, he's just being a dick. Uh, and and that kind of extends to this where it's just like, I'm not really sure what's going on. Like, I, I was so curious about the Backlund um Fight just to kind of like get a sense of where he was because this is around the time where the formative years of his wrestling career were, you know, that lead into him forming the first kind of uh, proto MMA promotion. So I'm trying to figure out where his head right, is. And <laughs> I
0: think, I, you know, I, I, I imagine a lot of people who are listening to this podcast know that, but Funaki was, you know, in many ways the first MMA fighter, right in a lot of ways. I think, you know, you had people in Brazil, obviously, uh, sure. and Inoki, you know, had the uh, Muhammad Ali fight, which was somewhat like that, but, I mean, Pancras was really the first, like, major MMA promotion, and it was it was a lot of... Uh, food. Was Funaki the impetus for that? I know that the first... There was this group of guys who left pro wrestling Fujiwara Gumi, which was a, one of the promotions that formed after the end of uwf the second uwf
1: i guess we should kind of set the stage so like the the uwf that we're watching here in 1989 and then uh, in 1990 as well is a shoot style wrestling promotion so the idea here is like this is what wrestling would look like if it was real uh still not real these are all work matches but uh the idea that these are all tough guys and fighting the way they should be fighting and they would like issue like impromptu challenges to like the champion of all japan pro wrestling or new japan um just this kind of a way to distinguish themselves is doing something different and they were really popular with uh, hardcore japanese wrestling fans especially in the tokyo area where they they could sell big buildings even though they for the most part didn't have television or anything like that just through the power of magazine and personality they they could uh, sell uh, sell out Uh, Huge arenas, mostly just to hardcore wrestling fans.
0: Yeah. I mean, that that two year UWF, the second one, especially. The first one had some amazing stuff in it, but certainly I didn't think they'd fully figured it out yet. Right, yeah, like they, it, they
1: were still doing a lot of you know, They would bring in Dutch Mantel And and Mexican wrestlers Who who didn't seem to really necessarily Know they were doing shoot style
0: <laughs> so, right, Well that first show with Mantel I don't even know if that was shoot style I think that might have just been a regular Japanese wrestling promotion And then they kind of moved into that a little bit later But yeah I mean it was like They had British guys and the Cuban assassin And then and, and some absolutely Incredible stuff in that first GWF But I think that second one that, Like two years, as it was very not a ton of shows. I mean, I don't know, tw- probably less than 20, 25 shows, maybe 30 shows, maybe probably less than that. Uh,
1: running once a month is yeah. kind of difficult.
0: yeah, so yeah, probably less than 25 shows total. I mean, uh, for a tiny short run, I, it is the best, maybe the best ever, you know, short run you'd ever in, in a wrestling promotion I ever. Mean, just incredible stuff up and down the card in those UWF shows, and really was invented a new thing which you know you don't see that doesn't that's not a thing that i mean most wrestling is not is variations of things we've seen before and this was not in a lot of this was really them creating this kind of unique thing and then you know didn't last very long they were like you know the equivalent of one of those bands that you know tremendously influential but released two albums you right. know they and were joy division or the sex pistols right like or it's just like they have a long uh you know tail but not but uh, their actual time they were around not very often and then they splintered what what give us a little bit of the historical background for the breakup
1: yeah so it's a kind of very that's an apt analogy because they it just like a lot of those bands like Uh, They got really popular, but it turns out like most of the guys in the band don't like each other very much. (laughs) (laughs) There's like a lot of jealousy and, you know, they've got multiple uh, guys like Akira Maeda is their main star Uh, and and he's just a force like the, the fans love and respect him. To the point where, like, to this day, he's, like, he's probably 300 pounds and in his 60s. And I bet they still think he could uh, beat, you know, Francis Ngannou or whatever. Like, just the belief that they had in him was so strong. But then you also have Nobuhiko Takata coming up. And he's... Uh, he's kind of like very much like Funaki and like, he just looks like a movie actor. He he was kind of born to be a professional wrestler And, and you've got Fujiwara and you've got all these young guys like Suzuki and Funaki who are, who are kind of knocking on the door. And, and it was really too much, I think for one promotion, like you can't have six top guys. And so, um, And then, you know, there was also a a big dispute about money. There was a guy who came over from New Japan who everyone believed was funneling money away from the promotion. The whole thing was a a big mess. So uh, at some point, uh, I think at the end of 1990, they're going to come together and and, and talk it out. And then they all get together at Maeda's house. And Funaki is telling me the story. And like, even now, like, there's different versions of it, and they won't really say what happened, but there's a big argument, and there may have been several fistfights, and uh, when it's over, the promotion is over, and so Takada goes and forms his own version of it, UWF International, uh, Maeda has rings, um, and then uh, Funaki and Suzuki and Ken Shamrock, and those guys go with Fujiwara, who uh, forms pro wrestling Fujiwara Gumi. And so there's suddenly what had been one tremendously popular promotion becomes uh, a, a couple of pretty popular uh, promotions and and um, never quite the same.
0: Yeah. I mean, also, you know, Rings, UWFI, even PWFHG, they all had like dome shows, right? I mean, I don't know if Rings did, but I know UWFI and PWFHG did. I mean, they they were successful for a while.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, these were all, I mean, so they were successful for, for several years. Uh, and they, they each were kind of like different versions. Surprisingly, like um, almost all of the roster stayed in Takata's group, UWFI to include uh, Nakano. And, you know, they brought in Vader and they had Takata and Anjo and Miata and Nakano. Yamazaki. Y- Yamazaki, basically everyone except for uh, Fujiwara's closest disciples who went with him. And, and Maeda basically went on his own and he, and he, uh, recruited a bunch of non-traditional wrestlers from Russia and a Dutch kickboxers and, and all kinds of kind of, uh,
0: well, was Tamura was Tamara UWF, uh, reborn guy, or was he a trainee who was a rings trainee? What was his sort of, sort of, or he was a guy who jumped from UWFI, right?
1: Yeah. So he started in UWF. He had, yeah. a, he was another guy that was kind of a, an obvious future star. And, uh, One of his first matches was like a a young boy match with Maeda where um, he got beaten up badly and then broke his orbital bone. And so he was out for like nine months or something. And then he went with, uh, didn't go with Maeda after that. Um, He went with the UWFI group and where he became kind of like the, the understudy Takata, the way Takata had been the understudy to Maeda. So um, that was his deal. But so when you know skipping ahead to the the mid 90s where they're running out of money um and UWFI makes a deal with new japan and and war and others to to do interpromotional matches um kiyoshi tamara doesn't want to do any matches with the pro wrestlers um he does some matches with like sakuraba and people like that but he won't do any matches against the new japan guys and eventually jumps over to to rings Mm -hmm. and uh has his big run there where he has like the classic matches with kosaka and and Volkan, and um kind of is being positioned once again to be the big star and um actual shooting gets in the way of that a little bit uh, right. and he loses some of some matches that were legitimate matches even though he was a really good legitimate shooter like he he beat pat miletic and some other name big name ufc fighters He he won matches against them real matches but you know, real, real.
0: I mean, I know that some of these shoot fights were in rings and and, and uh and pancreas were. Uh, there was always some, some questions, even well, that, ones that show up on yeah. people's MMA records, where I was like, oh, okay.
1: Yeah, so you should mm. put uh, real real in quotation marks um, mm-hmm. all the time. There were some results that didn't necessarily make sense, um, like especially when he would lose to like a relatively unknown like he lost to valentine overeem who was alistair overeem the famous mma fighter's brother like um a match that it made no sense for him to lose from a business perspective um, and, and it kind of like derailed his push a little bit so that's one reason to think that that was a real match um some of the others less so like there's a match with um uh, it, it all becomes like you look at it and have to determine for yourself <laughs> you know whether you think it was real um there's one that that like Dave Meltzer thought for sure was a, a shoot with Frank Shamrock. Um, I watch it and think like, no, that's a wrestling match. Um, so it, it, it's all just a matter of perspective. It's all guesswork. And that, that's like uh, one of the most interesting parts about watching Pancras. Um, it's trying to figure out if any of it's real, if all of it's real. Some of it's real, like, who knows?
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, it is a little bit of a mystery, the way that I... I would you assume that, hey, it's, quite, I mean, it's a little off-topic here, but that's kind of, you know, what we do this a lot this podcast, go off-topic. Would you assume that every UFC fight was real, or do you think, especially in the early day, there were some fixed fights there?
1: No, I think UFC has lots of fixed fights, probably to this day. Um, some of the early ones, for sure. Um and part of the reason is because of the nature of it is that it's very it would be very easy to fix these fights. Um, every time you have like an announcer saying like, oh, I can't believe he made this terrible decision to roll right into that armbar, right into that choke. Well, you if you're you should be thinking like, well, why why do you think he did that? Like, you know, <laughs> uh, when, when there's when there's huge bet like so there's lots of betting that goes on. UFC fights, especially when they're in Las Vegas. Lots of money bet on these fights. Uh, Sometimes bet on or against fighters who are making like $15,000.
0: Yeah. I mean, that is one of the real issues of Data White being such a greedy fuck is that you're, you know, when you pay your athletes such a tiny percentage of the gross that they don't have a they don't have as much incentive to make sure there isn't shady shit going on right like there's no way that LeBron James is gonna throw a NBA game right like there's not enough money in the world to make him put his a risk that but yeah if you're making a guy who's making 12 you know 33,000 dollars a year as a professional television personality you know right I mean it's like I gonna turn down the opportunity to to buy to to buy a better house or a nice car or, you know feed his kids
1: I mean you're talking about even fighters who are in main event fights on mega UFC cards that will have like a million plus pay-per-view buys uh, will sometimes be paid under a hundred thousand dollars like um, that's change, like changing a little bit for the better but like um, there, there's just a lot of money floating around, and not a lot of it's uh, always heading towards the fighter. And to me, that always makes you should make you suspicious. And, and then there's also like so many weird ways to win and lose a fight in, in MMA, where it's just you could do it, and it would be very hard for anyone to prove it.
0: But I know that people often say was like, "How can you say he was thrown? Do you see how hard he hit him?" It's like, no. If you're throwing a fight, you go ahead and get hit hard, right? You know what I mean? You're not going to pretend to get knocked out. You're just going to get knocked out, and but let him do it. Is how that how fixing fights works, right? Like so they, think of, they
1: think about the phantom punch is like being like the way that fights are are fixed. When if that happened, that's like the exception. Like one time, I had this long um, conversation with a, a, a fighter named Travis Fulton, who um, you know, just to, to put it out there, was. Uh, later in his life was arrested for having like um underage uh sex videos on his computer and hung himself in prison so um it's n- not a good ending but when i was talking to him it was in the context of him being uh, basically a guy who lays down for money in, in boxing matches and then then working it the other way in mma matches where guys would lay down for him and he's basically uh, explaining how that works on the midwest regional scene and so um The idea that, like, you could, that fight's not, people will often, like you say, post, like, a gif of, like, a guy getting punched really hard and saying, oh, you're telling me that he worked that? Like, yeah, that's how it, that's how it happens, (laughs) you know? You take the punch for the money. That's the interaction. That's the exchange that's happening.
0: Yeah. So. Even the phantom punch, and I think what you're talking about is the Sonny List Muhammad Ali fight. Right. Um, Even that, I think there are other angles where it's very clear that Ali clocked the shit out of him. And did Sonny Liston throw that fight for the mob? Probably, maybe I don't know. But he took a punch. <laughs> and, You know, like he he took a punch, and maybe he could have gotten up, and maybe that was why Ali was yelling at him. But that wasn't he didn't. That wasn't a missed punch. He took the yeah. punch, and, and then he made a, made a business decision when he was on the ground or not. Who knows? But
1: that's one example, right? So that that's um, a famous one because Ali is the most famous athlete of of any of our lifetimes. But um, you know, we, we know from uh, the fact that they were prosecuted and there's copious court records that um, the mob controlled boxing for decades. Like that's not an outlier. Like every major boxer uh, in the fifties and and forties worked with the mafia and everything that we know about the way the Japanese wrestling and fighting businesses work, every single one of them works with the Japanese mafia in some form uh, through ticket reselling and uh, going around and making local businesses buy a bunch of the tickets. Like there's all kinds of stuff that's happening here, but Yakuza sits front row on all the pride fighting championship shows. So, to believe that all of these events are legitimate, just because they're called mixed martial arts, is, I don't know, I, I think that's sort of naive,
0: maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's like, a, you can't be a, it's like, it, it almost is like believing wrestling, it's real, right? Like, you know, it's at some point, it's like, you, it, believing MMA is completely on the level, a little bit like believing, you know, that... The Hulkster was able to successfully slam Andre the Giant without Andre cooperating with him. In some ways, obviously, it's 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 per, you know portrayed differently, but obviously, you know, but certainly for the most of the professional wrestling's life, they were portraying that as a real contest as well. And you know that was kind of the story behind this, right? These this UWF reborn stuff also is the idea of them, you know, portraying this as real.
1: Right, and portraying okay. it
0: more as real, and Paykris was the uh, was the sort of endpoint of that, right?
1: Yeah, the, the ultimate evolution of this idea that started in the in the eighties with uh, Fujiwara again and Maeda and, and the first Tiger Mask and, and those guys in the first UWF, like it, it's just or, or ultimately kind of started with Anoki and Carl Gotch and guys like that, uh, the people who have that burning desire to make you think that it's real and they're tough guys like into his 70s luthes writing letters to the wrestling observer mad that carl gotch didn't think he was a tough enough guy (laughs) as they did fake wrestling matches in the (laughs) 60s or whatever it's like like you know to some people this is important and i think that uh funaki was probably one of those guys just to circle it back
0: yeah, and I bet Nakano was too. <laughs> you know what I mean? This, this fight, uh, this wrestling match, is wrestled like a match between two guys who want to show that they're not pretend guys. Yes, you, you so, know. So that,
1: that was what I was getting to I, I, that I didn't get to with the Backlund story. So I, I asked Funaki about this, and the way he described it was just like I think he said, I, I wanted to show him who I was and, and what this was. Like so that that's their mentality. It's right. like they they want to prove to everyone. Uh, my my computer's talking to us. I they want to prove that they're tough guys. That that's the 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 whole uh, genesis of this promotion of the style, and, and and it's what makes this match so compelling.
0: Yeah, and it, you know it's a kind of wrestling I really like. I like some guys who are gonna not show any daylight and are gonna go in there and, and just. I mean, I, you know, I, this shoot style stuff is some of my favorite stuff ever. Uh, You know, this, the Fujiwara Gumi stuff later with Battle Arts and Futen, which were more pro wrestling-ish, but had that same sort of like determination to show no quarter in anything they did. I mean, you know, it's, it's really compelling stuff and, you know, different in the certainly compelling in a way that something like you know 80s nwa was compelling or lucha libre is compelling. i mean that going back to the book a little bit that is the one of the things about the book is i wanted to go ahead and try to touch as many different uh parts of the wrestling landscape as i could right from you know french wrestling in the 50s to tiny you know arena lucho or u.s indie wrestling or wrestlemania or something like this where you know the this the book is way of the blade this is not this there's no blading in this that's right. that's yeah, that's pieces of uh Nikato's nose that he's spraying out of there yeah uh, the,
1: the blade was his his shin bone
0: <laughs> exactly <laughs> he used his or his,
1: or, or his his uh his palm right uh, i mean just right to the face yeah. i mean um, and the everything about this was brutal. Like you, you talk in the the book, I think about the the Alabama uh, slam or what, like yeah. the the slam at the finish of this match, is I don't know. It's just incredible to me. Like it, it how how hard it was and how he floated over it and like I, everything about it just seemed like grossly irresponsible in some way.
0: Yeah, and you but you could tell in the match. Just the level of like craft that Fudaki had. He was a really skilled, like, you know, even the way he applied that. He had a, he was a guy with tremendous skill. It's not surprising to me that he became a very effective shoot grappler later in his uh, career. Because you can kind of tell just the athleticism and sort of skill. skill was really there in this you know, there's a lot more bumps and bruises on the kind of thing that Kano does than Funaki, who really does come off like a real elite athlete, which, you know, he was, right, in a lot of ways. He was, at one point, I mean, where would he be ranked in as in MMA fighters in the world at his peak? Was he a top 10 guy?
1: I I, I think so. I mean, so everyone...
0: Um... And we just talked for 10 minutes, 15 minutes about how you had to question the legitimacy of all of this stuff. But So it's always making rankings harder when you, like...
1: Yeah. Because, like, even you're talking about the UFC, right? The promoter is the star's brother, (laughs) you know? Right. Uh, And and the referee is their training partner in in Los Angeles. It's like uh, uh, all of it is weird.
0: Well, Um, the original UFC, one of the things I find so fascinating about MMA, and you've written more about it than anyone, is it started almost like an infomercial. Like, it's a sport that started as an infomercial. That's what the first UFCs were, right? They were infomercials for Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. Yes, like so they, like like you know the ronco guy cutting things with the you know I mean, that's what it was and, and it's turned into like a real sport that's on ESPN and that's when you think about it that way that's really weird that that's how it started
1: <laughs> it's totally it's totally weird but it definitely started that way so they started with these they had these tapes called Gracie's in Action and it was basically camcorder footage like it would be like this Gracie brother has been insulted and now he must fight this man at the beach. And it's like just camcorder video of one of the Gracie's beating some guy up at the beach or they'll like beat up a karate guy who came to the dojo or made a bad mistake and said the wrong thing. UWF, Um,
0: uh, is Yoji Anjo famously, right?
1: Yeah. So like, you can be a pro wrestler if they want to come and say the wrong thing. Like that's a famous story where, you know, uh, UFC and, and, and fight, you know, real fighting as such as it is is becoming popular and all of a sudden these shoot style groups these guys who have been telling everyone for years that they're the real deal like once you see ufc in an actual fight like you realize like okay they are pretty real but that's not a fight like what what's
0: happening in Wait, there's the a side I- suplex in this
1: yes <laughs> so um, but now they they're a little bit like you know they they don't know what to do because they've been exposed in a way, Uh, in a way that they tried to expose the other, what they would call fake wrestlers. (laughs) Like, what you guys are doing is not real. What we're doing is real. And all of a sudden, someone else is doing something even realer, and these guys are kind of, don't know what to do. And so, uh, Yoji Anjo was considered himself one of the, the legit tough guys. And so, he comes to Los Angeles to challenge Hicks and Gracie, who was the toughest Gracie brother. And he shows up, he's got the Japanese press in tow, they're there to take pictures, and this guy, uh, Yoji Anjo, goes to the dojo where Hickson Gracie is the trainer. Hickson is at home, and so he's – Yoji Anjo is probably imagining a normal human being in this scenario. He thinks they're going to talk. They're going to maybe – there's going to be a grandstand challenge, and maybe there'll be a match at some point. Um, he doesn't understand that Hickson Gracie is a, a, a savage in some way. Um, so they tell Hickson Gracie this guy is at the dojo, wants to wants to see him. He's causing trouble. Uh, uh, Hickson's like, "I'll be right there." He shows up, and and he's ready to fight. Yoji Ange is like, "Oh, you know, no. I'll let you get ready. We'll do, you know, we'll do it another day. You know, you you didn't have time to prepare." And and Hickson tells him, "I, I was born ready, motherfucker." And uh, kicks all the photographers out of the gym. They have a fight. He beats the piss out of him. They let the photographers back in. They all photograph his busted and bloody face and that was kind of um the death knell in a way i think of this style of wrestling um that that moment because it was everywhere in in the japanese scene all the magazines the same magazines that had built these guys up into superheroes had the picture of yoji anjo and his face destroyed and everyone knew then that they weren't what they had said they were and um that was really the the end of what of this thing that that we loved. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was it, it was dead in a, from that moment. I
0: think. Yeah, I mean, there's it's, you know, there's embers of it places, but yes, for the most part, that was kind of the end. It was funny. I mean, it was even. I think they probably had Anjo do this instead of Takata for a reason, but yeah. I, I guess it even even then it didn't matter, right? I mean, Anjo was a never more than like a mid-cardish guy in any of these promotions, right? He was never a top guy. He was always kind of a you know an, an an r not a flare uh, <laughs> uh, you know at at his best, although I, I a very compelling performer, I really like you g h o and really enjoy him you know maybe even more than the guys that were on top in the u w f i but I think you're right i mean when you sort of when you when you're built on you being realer than the regular wrestling, and then when they realize you're not real. It's like, well, I can go, I can still go back and watch regular wrestling, right? You know, <laughs> although I guess the, you know, New Japan had a, a bit of a reckoning with this at one later point, where they had you know their guys go to Pride and try to uh, or these New Year's Eve shows and try to have shoe fights against real shooters, and famously kind of ended Yuji Nagata's or really derailed Yuji Nagata's career, where he shows up and tries to get into a fight with go into a fight with Crow Cop, who you know right. obliterates him. Like
1: this is the only thing that was worse back in that era, uh, the the Inoki era of New Japan. We're talking about the early two thousands now, where like it was terrible when they would lose, like Nagata lost really badly. Um, but it maybe was worse when they won, where like all of a sudden they're pushing like Yasuda or somebody like that because they <laughs> won a kickboxing match against Jerome <laughs> Band or something. And, yeah, like, it was, it was like it's bad when the good guy loses, but it's maybe worse when the bad when a poor performer
0: wins i kind of like Yasuda. i'm like a defender of that early 2000s i think he's but yes he was not the guy that should have held the title at all and it was kind of like oh man i was always surprised that alexander otsuka who had a big pride win right um never was able to turn that into a bigger career in japan because he's actually a great wrestler and who did he beat we're really off off the rails here but uh Otsuka had a big shoe fighting win, right?
1: Yeah, it didn't. Uh, I want to say it was like Marco Huas or something and like uh, it was like one of these weird situations where like the the actual fighter got like really exhausted or something.
0: I, I don't um Yeah, he yeah, beat, Ma- yeah, he beat mo he beat uh he busted up Marco Huas.
1: Yeah, mostly just Marco Huas got exhausted.
0: And I think then, he, um, he had a knee injury and hepatitis is what uh what Wikipedia <laughs> what uh, Alexander Otsuka's Wikipedia page says.
1: Well there you go. So but then uh he like immediately followed that up by losing you know, like his next hundred fights or whatever. Yeah. Like his the list of fighters I can just like kinda of remember that he lost to. Like uh they sort of tried with him in the in the MMA world because like he fought the big stars. He fought Henzo Gracie. He fought Igor Bob Chanson, who was like a the deadly Russian fighter. He fought Rampage Jackson. He fought Vanderlei Silva, Anderson Silva. Yeah,
0: I'm looking at his MMA record. It's like not a, not a ton of wins, but goodness, he certainly got his ass kicked by some of the greats, right? Like. Uh,
1: yeah, I- they didn't give him any chance to develop his skills. It's like, oh, you want to fight? Well, let's put him in with all the best guys in the world and see what happens. And the, what happens is you lose a lot, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, looks like he uh, he had a he had a he's got an MMA win in in 2011 against Bob Sapp. That has to be a work. Uh, yes. that, <laughs> that's, take I, that I, off I, his I, MMA record. Uh, Wikipedia.
1: Bob, Bob Sapp was. Um, intentionally like he would take all these fights and like lose them like in like a minute and a half or whatever <laughs> i saw him in biloxi mississippi and he fought bobby lashley um and the, it's generous to call it a fight you know, he's not, <laughs> he not fighting he was paycheck collecting so
0: um, looks like otsuka fought shamrock in pride yeah uh, yeah,
1: ken's uh big match like uh when, when he came back to to mma and that was um a big one of the probably Ken's big biggest pride win right the, that was his big victory it was was that a was that a
0: <laughs> was, the, was that a win <laughs> I mean Alexander Tsuk is a guy who will he'll put you over I mean Alexander Tsuke is a guy you know he he lost he lost a road warrior hawk too I mean I was that a
1: <laughs> I think I think that's a real fight it's a but real the, fight the okay. thing about the thing about Ken is that, interesting and it's uh Something like the fighter boss Rutan kind of made fun of him and others for, where it's like um, every fight you lost was a work, but every fight you won was real, huh? Like it's like, does that pass the smell test? Like right. <laughs> uh, So I, I, yeah, you, Ken is definitely a, a person where you have to to wonder about everything, but um, you know that was his if, first. If
0: people are more interested in wondering about Ken Shamrock, uh, were, your, your book. Your excellent book, uh, Shamrock, uh, is just titled Shamrock, right?
1: Yeah, Shamrock. There's like a subtitle: "The World's Most Dangerous Man." I think Uh,
0: is available on uh, is available on Amazon and other places where some other places where you can get books. I, I thought it was tremendous. I loved it. I mean, it was parts of it felt like, who else is interested in this? in this, uh, you know, breakdown of the history of pro wrestling Fujiwara Gumi, I couldn't be more interested. I, I loved every second of it. It was like, oh my God, somebody's actually writing a book discussing backstage PWFG politics. That was like Shoot the it stuff in I my cared. veins!
1: I cared the, the most about that stuff. And it's like, uh, it was also the heart, like if I just wanted to write this book about like Ken's big UFC, WWF, uh, Pride fights, like it would have been a six-month process and not like a three-year process, right? But I'm like, no, I need to get the details on this PWFG stuff. Like, you know, I, I need to know about your North Carolina indie wrestling.
0: That's why. That's why I mean, it felt like somebody who was going to go ahead and put in more, much more work than is necessary. Uh, and that's you know what made it so cool. I think it's you could read it clear. It's like, yeah, John. He put in more work than was necessary, certainly, uh, and you know because I think part of it is like you know what I I am doing this because I want to do this, and I'm gonna go ahead and make this the best it can be, and, and I think it, it really is great. It really is a blast to read for anybody who has not picked up that book. I think you know, and in the spirit of kind of what we're doing at you know hybrid shoot, I think right is the kind of idea of we're gonna do this. This is gonna be, this is gonna be for the people who would. This is for.
1: Yes, <laughs> t- definitely. Like, this is not, like, I, although I was uh, gratified to find there was somewhat of a mainstream audience for it, I guess, because obviously Ken has that time in, in the in the limelight in WWF and UFC. So there is, like, an audience of people who are vaguely interested in him. Um, that's not who I wrote this for. <laughs> like, I wrote this for me and you and Lee Casebolt and, like, you know, <laughs> people who are super into this. Um, and, and that's kind of like the, the genesis of like this entire hybrid shoot thing, which is like, um, I want to work with and, and help people who really care about the material. Like, um, and, and if that means that there's a smaller audience, that's fine with me. Uh, you know, I, I just want to do justice to the topic, whether it's bloody wrestling matches or the crazy career of Ken Shamrock, like, I don't know. I think like not that wrestling and fighting is our important things, but it's like if you're going to do it, um, it's worth doing it like in a the, the way that it deserves to be done. Like we're, we're here like uh, with MMA, especially like this is the as you point out, the formative time like this sport was created like in our lifetimes, you know, like yeah. this is the time to be doing the the initial history on it and asking all these questions about how this stuff worked. Like these people are still alive now. Like this is our moment. Like um, so, yeah. Right, I just we can't write. Weird. We
0: can't write a history as easily. Write a history of the beginning days of baseball, <laughs> right? right. I mean, They're historical records, but you know, it's not like you can interview. Uh, you can interview Tinker's, Evers, and Chance, and get them to tell you about what it was like playing playing for the Cubs in nineteen twelve, right? No, those guys. But you can you know, talk to Ken Shamrock, you can talk to Masakatsu Funaki, you can talk to, you know, all of those folks. And, you know, even this wrestling stuff, a lot of those guys are still alive. And, you know, and even though my my thing is a little less historic and more just like, here's footage and here is like, here's what makes this match interesting. It's still, I mean, you know, I, I really like, I really like people who treat unimportant things like they're important. Those are some of the most fun things to read. Where somebody's going to be like, this is something I care a lot about and I'm going to write it and maybe when not you're done, I'm done, you'll care a lot about it too. Uh, I mean,
1: that's what, what I really loved about you guys as wrestling writers, where it was like it felt reading you or like Dean uh, made it feel like it was okay to, to like and care about this stuff <laughs> as much as I did. Because I was like, oh look, there's someone else out there <laughs> yeah. that that cares about wrestling the, the way that I do, and so it's like, um, if we could find a few more of those people and they can be introduced to some things they've never seen before, uh, courtesy of your book, or even like something they've seen before but they've never thought about it the way you described it, it's like that's that's the win,
0: yeah. Um, I mean, there's 100 matches in my book, and I can, I, I mean, there must be someone. But I don't know how many people how many people, you probably count them on one hand, who had seen all hundred matches before the you know what I mean, before the book was out. I can't imagine there's hardly anyone, right? Me. Maybe Eric, but maybe not, right? Like it really is the list of people who would actually go, oh yeah, those hundred matches, I've seen, I've seen Yard Call. From Anarchy Wrestling, <laughs> and I've seen uh, Doctor Adolf Kaiser versus Michael Schisnis from France, and I've seen this match. And I've seen and that was the thing." I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, uh, you, whatever, how, whatever kind of freak you are, you're still gonna find some stuff in here which is really awesome that you've never seen before. Even if you're as big a freak as as uh, you know you are, or, or even you know other hardcore wrestling fans. Like I, I guarantee, if you read this book, you're not, you're gonna discover something cool you've never seen before." And that's yeah, kind of I mean, you know that's has been my mo, you know I'm as uh, for a long long time. That's what Segunda Kaida, you know, which is the thing that I did after the Death Valley Driver. That was really about, you know, we're gonna go, we're gonna go past the surface and dig into the trenches and curate. I mean, that's the thing. You know, there's a real value in curation, especially now when all of it's available, right? Where you can get your, hey, you don't need, if you wanted to watch all hundred of these matches, to pay Jeff Lynch $500 or $1,000 or how much money that we spent on videotapes and DVDs and all this stuff. It's just all out there. It's all on YouTube or it's all on a streaming service or whatever. And now when all of it's out there, there's some real value to curation where you say nobody can watch all of it.
1: Yeah, I mean that. I mean, I find it immensely valuable to to find people whose input I I trust and find interesting, and and see what it is that they're into. Um, and and with you guys, it's like I, I don't have to agree with everything, like you know, and I don't. Like I don't agree with all. We have very different opinions about some things, but I know that you're coming from a good place and that you care about it a lot. And I know that while you may not like everything that I like, I I'm generally very confident that anything that you're really passionate about, I'm going to like too.
0: Yeah. Um, And there's some value to finding guys and just understanding their viewpoints. I like read people who I know I disagree with tremendously on a lot of things, but I kind of, when you understand their, their viewpoints, you can go, all right, you know, But Robert Bahari, who writes a lot about lucha, is a guy whose opinions on lucha and mine differ tremendously. But if he really likes something, I understand what it is, and I get what he would like about it, and then I can tell it was like, well, this is something he liked would like, and I will not like. But here's something that he likes that I would like, and now I know about it. So in some ways, that one of the valuable. So even if you don't. Agree with me or Eric or some of the other good guys, people or whatever. It's good to sort of you know when you got a a back history of writing like I've got. It's like you know, well at least you know if I like something, what where I'm coming from, <laughs> right? So I, it's it's not a mystery why I like something and what I what I'm about. And if that you agree with that or like part of it, uh then you like that. I'm, I'm just sitting
1: here. Uh, I'm stuck on the thought of like Jeff Lynch like somewhere like on the Adriatic Sea and like a a yacht, just like living the good life on our stupid wrestling.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I a lot of money. I mean, I got to the point where I could trade for most of it, but even that's not cheap, right? You're buying, you're going to Costco and you're buying, you know, 30 packs of, uh, of, uh, videotapes and you're, you know, running through two or three VCRs a year. From uh, copying and all the mailing. (laughs) You know, like it really is, really is something. I mean, I wish wrestling was better now uh, with all the (laughs) access that we have of it, right? I mean, God, if I had the ability to. Imagine if there was a streaming service for 1980s Memphis where you could watch every 1980s Memphis uh, arena show when it happened live, like you could watch every GCW show like that. I don't have any problem with GCW, but I'm saying, Jesus, imagine if that was available for Continental or All Japan in 1993 as opposed to New Japan in 2021.
1: Right, which sort of brings us back to the curation aspect of your book. And, and why it's so valuable, at least to me, because like like if if I want to know about the latest New Japan show, there's a hundred and twenty people um, to tell me about it. And it's not a, me. I, I'm not one or, of
0: them. I don't.
1: <laughs> it's not hard to find. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of this content out there. Uh, WWE Network has some, and also like if you're someone like me, even like you've probably I've downloaded tons of wrestling. And where do I start? What do I watch? What do I value? How do I use my time? My limited time, I've got a whole collection of 1995 Tony CW worldwide. I'm not gonna watch all of it. Um, what do I wanna watch? That's where like people like, like you guys come in. People uh, are doing the work, talking about some of this older wrestling. It's like, you can help me cure my collection. Uh, even stuff I, before, my memory. Like, uh, I think it's like immensely valuable. I wish more people were doing it the way that have uh, done it, which is uh, self-aggrandizing, but still. Like, <laughs>
0: yeah, I wish more people were like me too, John. I agree with you 100%. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I mean, exactly. I'm not going to review Dynamite. I don't know. You'll find somebody to be able to do the, You don't need to know what I think of it. You know, maybe I'll pick one or two matches I love and, and write about those, but. I don't need to write about it weekly. That's that's covered. Nobody's writing weekly about uh, Paradigm Pro Wrestling, Michigan shoot style. That's what I'm doing. I'll tell you what's good there and what what isn't. But you don't need me to tell you what's good on Raw. Uh, the answer is probably not much.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I love you for it. And I, I'm glad you're you're doing it. And, and I I don't even remember how this came to be, but I'm glad that you did it. Like it's it's a really cool piece of work.
0: Yeah. And so um. Final final thoughts on this match. In the context of where it exists, in shoot style, in what's in the book, uh, I want to talk just a touch back one last time to Finaki Nakano before I let you go. It's one of the shorter matches in the book. It's probably one of the shorter shoot matches in UWF. Reborn, like I said, we we talked about that. It's a promotion that would stretch. And I think it really is something that even for folks who don't have shoot-style wrestling eyes, there are people who just can't. Get either Maybe it's because of familiarity with MMA or just they, they have an idea of what wrestling is and it isn't this. You see people like this say that kind of thing all the time. This, I think, is a universal match. This is a fight. This is a nasty fight. This is a, a, a world star ass-whooping. And I can't imagine that folks are going to see this and think that they can't get into it.
1: Yeah, so I, I hope that... Uh, anyone that's listening like i hope no one is turned off by because sometimes i think that there uh, are a lot of people who are turned off by the concept of shoot style they've seen some of these matches we've described these uh, uh 30 minute leg lock fests and they think of shoot style as like being super technical um and and uh, involving a lot of mat work and and this is not that match like if you just like guys clubbering as as dusty Rhodes would say like this is a clubbering match um Hard shots, hard kicks, hard knees, hard uh, palm strikes to the face. Uh, when they do uh, do suplexes and slams, they're done with authority. Like, um, this is a shoot-style match, but it's also a wrestling match, uh, first and foremost. It's just... Warning. Oh, yeah,
0: it's completely. I mean, it's got the story. It really has a narrative uh, in a way that sometimes you, they don't have as as well-developed a narrative. They're just interesting or cool or technical or whatever, but this has got a beginning, a middle, an end, a story being told, a universal story being told, and told in fists and kicks and bloody (laughs) snot.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's nothing complicated about this. You don't have to understand the style. You don't have to know the history of either guy. Um, There's a, a short, tubby guy. There's a beautiful man, young man in his 20s. Uh, and, and they fight. That's the that's the match. Like that's all you need to know.
0: That's uh, all you need to know. Yeah, I mean
1: they, they tell it. They tell it in the ring as they as they did back in the day. You know, the story is is very clear uh, as executed.
0: Yeah, it's it's great, and I think it, it. It. I know it's one of my it's one of my favorite shoot style matches of all time, and it's in a way that's very different from my other ones. Like if you if I made a list of my top ten favorite shoot style matches of all time, this one would be an an outlier in a lot of ways. But it, it is a hell of an outlier, um, and really worth watching if folks haven't seen it. And uh, and I, I this is one of my favorite write ups I did in the book too. I think I really I think I I like my my jokes i like what i like what i said about this match a lot i think i kind of i hit it in the art of this match is great too it's it's a lot of fun and you know i, I had a perfect one to talk about with you too john because you've got so much of an encyclopedic knowledge of of the context of this in the both wrestling world and in the sports world in a lot of ways uh which i thought so i really appreciate you coming on talking to me about it yeah i would imagine happy. a, a better guest
1: because I was surprised often by the the choices that you made. Some of them, like you say, are matches I'd never heard of or seen. And then some of them are like, "Wow, it's pretty cool that that Phil selected this one." And this is a match that um, I you know I don't remember. I, I remember less and yes, less as years go by. But like uh, this is a match that I remembered fairly well um, because it is kind of an outlier and, and it is so um, visceral. And, and, and so Funaki is so aggressive in it, and so is uh, Nakano like I don't know I, I, th- I think it's probably the most approachable uh, of any shoot style match that that is in the the UFC UWF genre.
0: Yeah, I think so too. So if folks haven't seen it. they should watch it. it's on YouTube. It's linked on hybrid shoot's uh, blog where we've got a uh, viewing guide with everything linked to it and of course like i always say if it's not linked on that page i'm not hard to get in touch with my dms on twitter are open i can always get you copies of things that are harder to get uh john you got any plugs uh uh you've got a podcast you've got books tell us about them
1: <laughs> um yeah my main plug is for people to buy your book way of the blade uh, 100 of the greatest bloody matches <laughs> in wrestling history um my wife and I do have a podcast. It's uh, just the two of us talking about the wrestling we've enjoyed, um, mostly stuff that you wouldn't like, Phil. So.
0: Have <laughs> um, you noticed you haven't had me on as a guest? I think maybe that's uh, the have, reason. We've never, we've, we've never
1: had a guest. So, um, <laughs> but you know, we do kind of. Uh, uh, death valley driver style uh, road trip reports when we like like we're going to be going to AEW in charlotte and like we'll talk about that and so um much less exciting than your, than your road trips but uh, we, we do that and then course, a different
0: part of our lives John, yeah we're, than i was we're we, uh, <laughs> for sure
1: we're definitely grown up uh such as it is and then uh, of course shamrock is my my latest book i i am uh really proud of how it turned out and it's also available through hybrid shoot and at amazon and Barnes and noble and you can get your local bookstore to or, order it as well so um
0: yeah I would and appreciate follow you- me on twitter and follow john on twitter follow hybrid shoot on twitter there's a lot i mean i i don't know how many projects you have in the hopper it seems like a, every time i talk to you you've got three new ones but it, we are there is an ambitious slate of books and stuff coming out. I mean, we're gonna, you know, we're riding this till the wheels come off, uh, you know. And and there's a bunch of cool stuff that people of different different folks are working on, and more to come, you know. Yes. Both of in both from me and from a lot of other uh, people as well.
1: My my whole thing is to like to take people like like you who have this great uh, knowledge. Skill sets to produce a book, um, and and like just maybe give you a little nudge to get you out there and, and doing doing it. And um, I was so happy with how it turned out. And we've got a, a lot more kind of like that, where it's just like people who are are, are very strong in their niche, and, and like who who should be doing this kind of stuff. Like you should have been doing this kind of stuff. Dean should have been doing this kind of stuff. Like. Me and Bixsen Span are the people that were like became famousish writers. That's bullshit. You guys should have been out here doing this. And so um, if we can make that happen in some way. Like um, that—that's what I'm all about. Like uh, I, I want you to be the new uh, the new uh, Scott Keith. Is that oh. what you're
0: <laughs> I don't know if it was a compliment, <laughs> 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 uh, but uh, but yes, I, I I'm taking it in the spirit it was given. Uh, well, thank you so much, John, for, uh, for coming on. I will be talking to you soon. We will have another episode of uh, this podcast next week. As always, Thursday morning, check your feeds, and uh, uh, we'll talk soon.